welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast, a podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and I am going down PhD route today and extremely excited about this conversation. I have got Dr. Will Vickery in to talk to me today. Thanks for coming in, Will. No problem, Brent. Good to be here, mate. This is... um. As I said, I'm a bit scared about this podcast because I'm going to sound really stupid, I'm sure, when I go through this conversation with someone with your experience in this in this coaching field. But um, I'm really keen to pick your brain and get the ideas from you. So I'm excited about this one. So for those that don't know you, can you give me a bit of a background about yourself? Yeah, of course. Um, I do want to kind of premise as well. No need to feel stupid here, mate. I, <laughs> I dare say there are a lot more people out there that know a bit more than I do. So, um, But anyway, uh, so my background is, uh, well, I'm currently uh, lecturing at uh, Deakin University uh, in sport coaching, <clears throat> which forms part of the exercise and sports science degree. Uh, and I've been there for, uh, I would say, almost three years now. Um, but prior to that, I've kind of jumped between Australia and and the UK with regards to my roles, mostly within um, academia when it comes to sports coaching. Uh, but in addition to that, I have worked in a variety of, I guess, coaching roles. Uh, all, well, I would say 99% within the, the sport of cricket, that's that's my cup of tea. Um, I've worked from junior level through to um, S&C as um, part of the New South Wales cricket program. I've I've interned at Cricket News, uh, Cricket Australia, sorry, uh, to help with the sports science and coaching program. Uh, I've I've been involved in sports administration and development uh, from a really early age. Actually, was involved with Cricket New South Wales development program from when I was sixteen as a coach, uh, and that continued through to when I kind of finished my my studies, uh, which went on for I think more than a decade, really. Um, so I've kind of held an awful lot of positions. Mostly, I would say within, I guess, development pathways rather than more elite sport. Um, that's tend to what I actually prefer. I actually prefer to work with the the younger generation when it comes to coaching. Um, but it's been a healthy mix, I guess, between my role as an academic and, uh, and and as a practical sports coach as well. You'd you'd probably find you can probably change more people when they're when they're starting out as opposed to once they're in the system for a while. You can't make too many changes once they're in there for a little while. Yeah, and to be fair, those 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 uh, younger people tend to be a little bit more willing sometimes to listen to what you've got to say, <laughs> or at least have a bit more fun with the idea of what's going on. So uh, yeah, it's it's nice to have that little little bit of, I guess, um, spark that, that pops in the trainer session now and again. Makes makes so much sense. So cricket is obviously where you've you've landed. Is was that a specific choice, or did you just kind of fall into it, or did you play as a junior? And how far did did you go as a player? Uh, I'm a cricket tragic. Always have been. Always will be. Um, I mean, I'm supposed to be up watching the cricket in Brisbane as we talk. So uh, I I played I played from officially I suppose competitively since the age of seven. And pretty much carried that through to, to well, I suppose that would be almost 30 years now. Um, I've not represented any high level or anything, just always been much more of a social cricketer. Um, I wouldn't say I'm the worst in the world, but nowhere near the, the best either. Um, so cricket has kind of always formed an awful lot of what I've done, both academically and from a, a industry coaching perspective it's pretty much shaped where i've got to uh, right now um, and that is purely because of just the family i grew up in um, all mad cricketers um, including mum who has never played a game of a life but has attended probably more games than i have um, so yeah crickets cricket's been i guess running through my blood for a long time which is kind of how i moved into the coaching realm when it comes to cricket it's something with with sport that attracts families, doesn't it? It's curious you said that your 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 parents have been involved with with sport all along, and it just tends to happen. Like I'm come from a coaching background in golf, but my my parents play golf, or my my father does, but my mother hasn't played at all. But she spent so much time on the golf course in general. They just get dragged in to help out with scoring duties and doing food and doing all sorts of stuff. So, which is a cool part of Australian sport, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like. Mum, mum has been fantastic in that, and she loves it. Like I don't think she'd ever give it up. She, 
she travels down to Sydney to watch my my sister play every weekend, and and that's a two hour drive. Um, and yeah, just absolutely loves it. And yeah, the old man's been was my coach for most of my junior career. So yeah, you can't you couldn't get him out of the sport if you tried. Now I'm curious curious on that on that parent coaching because I'm involved in that space at the moment of coaching my son who's in grade six and he plays every sport in the world except for golf, <laughs> which is crazy enough. But he plays everything, and I coached his football and soccer teams in the the last season just gone, and it can be a challenging space as a parent and a coach in that same space. So how did you find that as a kid? Yeah, I suppose I, I, I never really thought about it, I think, all that much as a kid. It was more so when I kind of looked back on I looked back on things when I was probably a little bit older, probably at university, and it really kind of, I think, dawned on me then like how much of an influence the old man did have as a coach there. Um, I guess I just clearly enjoyed the environment and, and what he brought. Um I always did hear kind of things about how, how good a coach he was. and he, he did tend to have quite success with his coaching. He moved through grades and actually was uh, a representative coach in country New South Wales and those sorts of things uh, within the junior system. So he, he clearly knew what he was talking about. I guess I kind of took it for granted. I, I just enjoyed playing with my mates and hadn't having my dad helping me through that. I suppose I didn't see it any other way in that, it was no different to what would have happened in the backyard. He was always kind of coaching us in the backyard anyway. So I, it was just a more formal environment, I guess. And yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that when you look back on it, you think, well, yeah, that really probably shaped how, how I coach today and, and why I got into the role that I am. No, that's that's cool. It can be a, a space sometimes where the kid goes, you're my dad. You, you don't know what you're talking about as my coach. What are you telling me what to do? It, uh, it was a bit of an odd situation. I was It was quite unique in the sense that uh, he was not just my coach, but he was president of the whole association. Okay. So he was essentially <laughs> in charge of all the junior cricket uh, and everything. So he had quite an influence on not just me, but a lot of the juniors over a number of years. So I don't know, maybe I just must have shut that that sort of off in my head and just worried about the cricket. When it when it came to training on Saturdays, so. no, that's cool. That's cool. It, it it would be a challenging space for him then, I'm sure as well. If 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 you were starting to make rep teams or play up in grades, does he get involved in that to choose you or not choose you? It can be challenging for him as well. Yeah, I mean, I I can't say that too much myself. I've never made too many rep teams, but uh, my other two siblings are much more competent than I am, and actually, he, I do remember situations where he had to remove himself from that, um, particularly my younger brother. Uh, who he ended up coaching as well in the representative teams, so was not allowed to obviously select, um, which is quite a hard thing for a coach not to do. Because they're kind of the first people that have that, that call, don't they? Yeah, they're, yeah. So they're coaching was, that team. Absolutely. So we kind of had to lean on a few others that, that would, would help him out there. Okay. So undergraduate study was what in what field? So I studied a Bachelor of Science which was a focus on sports science all the way through um, undergrad. Uh, I'd always had a a passion for sport. I mean, I I knew in high school that I wanted to go on and do something to do with sport, and that was a nice little avenue um, back back in those days. So, yeah, everything was was undergrad sports science. And did you go straight into PhD study or did you do a master's first or what was the, the process through there? So I moved on to an honours after that uh, where I actually did a study weirdly on the biomechanics of beach flag sprinting. So, okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a – was kind of a, I, the way that that kind of – I fell into that one, to be perfectly honest. That was uh, – I had two projects to choose from and that was the one that allowed me to be outside in the sun in the summer. I mean, it, was a, it wasn't a hard choice in the end. Yeah, it would have been a, a quite a strange study, I, I could imagine. But again, I'm sure the scenery was quite nice out there as well on the beach. Absolutely, and I mean, you're obviously not going to go out in the in the bad weather, so you got good weather every time you were uh, outside collecting data. So that was quite handy. <laughs> um, but yeah, then moved into the PhD after after that, uh, and that's where it really focused on, I guess, the use of my my. One of my bigger passions in terms of, I guess, content and, and research is 
looking at practice and how that's designed. Uh, and that's what a lot of my PhD, well, that is what my PhD was about, was about using specific practice designs uh, to help kind of look at the demands that, that occur within within cricketers. And that's probably where I picked up on your stuff. When I, I saw you post a, a few tweets out there looking for um, students to come and help you with a research project, and that was when I said, okay, I'm going to check this guy out and do a bit of bit of diving and saw some of your papers out there. And it, it really piqued my interest with regards to to training and coaching fluence and all that kind of stuff. Is It's something that's always been of a, a real keen interest to myself as well is how much influence does the coach actually have on performance? Um, how do we set up training so the players perform at their best? And that was the kind of stuff that really piqued my interest. So I'm curious to dive into that area with you, which would be really cool. Yeah, no, it's, it, yeah, it's a big passion. It's um, and and again, I'm coming over from a purely golf point of view to start with. But training in golf and practicing golf has been very haphazard in the past. It's very much, uh, especially in the average club golfer type situation, is more about come and have a coaching session, give you something to go and work on, and then off you go and do it. And we spoke quickly off air about the team space in cricket. So obviously, you've got a squad of players and a team of players, and it's obviously a bit more formalised with how you go about training. They have specific times and you work through specific things. So can you talk me through what cricket training was like when you first started and then kind of maybe how it's evolved over time? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it depends, I guess, what kind of level you're speaking about here because I would say at a community-based level from from now and if you look back in the past for almost forever, like it, it pretty much revolves around the net-based sessions, the net settings, where you've got your bat v ball and then it's a really kind of repetitive, continuous feel to a look about it. And there's, there doesn't – back in the day anyway, I would say traditionally it's, it's, very, it's been very unstructured, structured environment, um, which kind of doesn't really make sense. But it's pretty much just – go into the nets with a bat and then you've got a whole bunch of bowlers that just take turns to to, to do their thing um, with no real plan, no real objective. That's what it was pretty much for the majority of time when I actually was a, a young cricketer um, and a good chunk of my, my senior life as well. It still happens to this day, to be honest. Uh, and I think that's what most people have in their head about what cricket practice looks like. And you might obviously throw in some some fielding now and again, which again is very much one up, throw a throw or catch a ball sort of situation. Uh, in terms of how it's evolved, I think the what it would have looked like from an external perspective, somebody looking from the fence, you might see that nothing has much changed in terms of it's still a net based session. You still do a training session on the field to work on your fielding, that sort of thing. But I think the coaching has actually evolved somewhat that now they recognize that, yeah, we're confined to these environments and that's got a lot to do with money. A lot of clubs just don't have the facilities nor the money to, to go out and do a center wicket practice or scenario-based training like they might be able to in, in a high-performance environment. But coaches are a bit more savvy now and they can recognize that you can still set up scenarios in a net and you might give the batters something to work towards, whether it be hitting so many balls into the, a different direction uh, whilst they're in the nets. You might try and create some pressure by telling them they need X amount of runs off so many balls, that sort of thing. And you can obviously then get your bowlers to work towards a plan to, I guess, try and restrict the batters from doing or achieving their goals there. Um the feeling has become a little bit more scenario-based as well. You can include the batters. You can include some other scenarios that kind of make it look a little bit more like a match. So that's probably where it is at the moment. I think the next logical step, um, I don't want to kind of jump in here, but I think you are starting to see as well a lot more center wicket stuff when teams have got the capability to do so. Um, so it, there is a lot more match representative stuff that exists nowadays. And I think a lot of a lot of coaches and athletes really kind of appreciate the fact that you can do something that is quite a large-scale sport. It's not like a, a footy match of any sort, whether it be soccer, rugby, league, whatever. You can just take a part of the field and just work on that, 
cricket's a bit different. You can't just take a part of the field most of the time and and just work on one part. It just doesn't work that way. So that's where modified center wicket stuff uh, is is changing and, and starting to creep in. But again, it all falls back to being able to kind of access that sort of environment. It's it's a space that I would assume would be really challenging because in a, a cricket environment playing the game, you could essentially stand in a spot in the field for hours and hours and hours and hours and then all of a sudden the ball comes to you and you have to react to that spot. And then training must be challenging to set up that type of situation because if you're doing slips catching, for example, the slips fielders are there and the ball's coming. They're already aware that the ball's going to come to them. So they're already in that pre-set ready spot to go. Whereas out in the field, it could be three hours standing there without getting a catch. All of a sudden it comes to you. How do you set up that type of situation? Yeah, and, and to be fair, that's that's the issue that comes with an awful lot of the more traditional coaching, particularly when it comes to feeling, is that it's not actually set up for reaction a lot of the time. It's just skill-based, technical skill-based stuff. So, yeah, that's where it all kind of stems from. And I guess when you're trying to create a moment rather than a repetition of a drill, it really comes down to, I guess, trying to be as representative as possible. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to look and feel, and you're obviously not going to make someone stand still for three hours and then finally hit them a catch. You've just got to try and create a scenario. I guess a nice little example of that is, you might you might pretend it's say the last ten overs of a match and it might not be catches, it might be run outs. And you've got the batters uh, who are doing some center wicket running and you've got your cover and you mean know, if you might just have a whole offside field and then the batter the, sorry, the fielders might have to just try and anticipate or what's coming next. And it might be as simple as that where you're just getting or you might be the coach feeding balls to the offside whilst you're having the say the, the 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 batters run between the wickets they've got freedom to call um, you give them complete autonomy on whether they want to go or not it's then up to the fielders who are in that inner ring as to whether or not they throw down the stumps which end they want to throw to whether or not they need to throw that's that's how you might kind of set up that anticipation that that comes with being in the field in cricket. Um, I mean, there's lots of scenarios you could set up, but I would always fall back on a scenario because that's how you create that decision-making. Um, that's how you create players who are aware of what they're going on rather than, unfortunately, in cricket, where if you're standing in a line for a, a couple of hours or just half an hour or whatever happens to be an activity, you're not getting that element that comes with that additional part of the scenario. It does make sense. How how do you how do you train or how do you deal with the fatigue that would happen from playing an f- entire day's worth of cricket? Then all of a sudden you have to perform the skill under fatigue. How do you train that? Because the, as you said, the traditional training session is an hour in the nets um, or however long it goes for, but they're only hitting balls for maybe a part of that time. How do you train the fatigue that comes about from playing a full game of cricket? I'm not convinced that anyone does it properly. Okay. Ever at the moment, I'm really not convinced, and I would be more than happy to be shown otherwise. But me working with junior cricketers these days, it, it's not as big a deal, and I we do try and obviously limit how much fatigue we place them under with all these kind of maturation that they're going through and and whatnot. But I guess if you are looking to try and fatigue the athletes and put them in that situation, because you're absolutely right, you think at the end of a Test match, day four or five. People are absolutely off their feet um, sometimes and it's very hard to concentrate and then perform under that pressure. What you might see is that they might do some, some say, shuttle runs or they might go through an interval training pro like protocol or something like that in the morning and then you might do some afternoon or some midday training so that you've got some tired legs, some tired bodies, and then you move them just into your typical practice session. Um, it could I mean, you could implement that with a weight session you would obviously go na- massively hard or anything, but just something to fatigue the body. Um, it might be that you just go through. I mean, you also need to fatigue the mind in cricket as well. And 
because it is such a, a mental sport, you've got to be able to focus for that split second because that, that, that will absolutely change the game. So trying to fatigue a cricketer um, mentally is also something that needs to be considered. And again, I don't, I don't do that an awful lot with my junior cricketers. It might just be that you get them involved in something that stimulates their mind. And that can be quite a personal thing. Um, it could be playing some video games. I know that might sound – but something that they have to be focused on, uh, whether it be video games, whether it be reading a book, whether it be um, getting them to do some, I guess, word puzzles. And those sorts of things can actually find – I mean, I can't – I don't have any research – or evidence that I can kind of point anyone to about that, but just anecdotally, I can I have seen that happen in the past. So it's probably about just loading the guys up or the guys and the girls, sorry, up before you just put them into a, a typical session. That's probably the most, I guess, the typical way you would go about it. You could always get them to train. Sorry, you could always get them to train in the middle of the middle of the heat on a on a sun on a sunny day, that sort of thing to kind of. Uh, uh, kind of create the fatigue whilst they're there as well. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Well, that was kind of my first thought is get them straight out of a heavy training, physical training session and then get them out to do some skills training or some skills practice and see how they perform. I know yeah. I've, I've seen, I've heard performance coaches talk about, um, in a golf point of view, simulating that high heart rate type setup where they have to hit the seven iron shot into the green on the 18th hole type of setup and getting them to do like you said, shuttle runs or push-ups or something physical to get the heart rate up and then pull off the shot. So, yeah, sounds like we're on a similar path, path there, which is which is really cool. Now, this is something that um, I've always curious about, So, and you'll be able to come at it from a junior perspective because that's probably where you do most of the work on it. Golf coaches traditionally are very much focused on the technique of golf swing. They work really hard on turning the golf swing into the perfect golf swing. It's changing slowly, but I'm curious in other sports, obviously your your expertise is in cricket, how much focus is put on the technique of of the skills in cricket as, as a coach? I, I mean, it's probably not an awful lot different to golf. Um, uh, into the golf, cricket, um, say baseball, Tennis, a lot of those bat ball sports. There's always been a heavy focus on on technique, and it always has come with that idea, as you say, of that of that perfect technique. Um, and within cricket, you've got both bat and and bowl. So there's a lot of focus on getting things right. Um, it's always been a traditional perspective that you need to do X, Y, Z, and that will allow you to then be a better cricketer, whether it be batter or bowler. Uh, I mean, I know where I went through it as a, as a junior cricketer that I was told that I had to get my elbow in the right spot upon contact, my head needed to be in the right position, all of those sorts of things that we hear. Um, and you can kind of transfer across sports where the, where technique is very heavy. Um, when it comes to the focus nowadays, it's, again, very much like golf. Is It, it is slowly evolving. Um, and particularly in junior sport, a lot of people are a lot more accommodating of, I guess, the athlete figuring things out for themselves and what works best for them. Um, cricket is a very unique sport in the fact that you've got you've got people who can perform the same role, whether so, for example, a batter, but how they go about that can be very different between players in the one team because they each then have their own sub role within that and they each play different. And that then kind of transfers across the type of shots they might play and what they might be, what their technique might actually look like then. So what works for one person at the top of the order who might be able to blast the ball to all parts of the field is not going to work for the nerdler like myself. <laughs> um, I can't hit balls out of the park. I'm not built for it. So I can't use the same mechanics and it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense that a coach would then try and teach the two of us the same technique or try and get us to look the same because it's not going to be effective for the two of us. Um, and it is changing, absolutely is changing. And I think the best example 
that anyone who's involved in Australian sport will have seen Steve Smith. And he has got the weirdest looking technique that anyone has probably come across in the last few decades when it comes to cricket. But thankfully, people have not touched what makes him unique to a point that, yeah, they probably work on some tweaks now and again. But it's what he does is effective. So there's no point in changing it. Yeah, and again, it's about, and it's a challenging space in golf as well, is finding out what does work and being conscious of what you should be changing and then what stuff you need to not touch, which can be hard to do. Yeah, I mean, I always go down the thought process of if it's not actually causing any injury and they're actually performing how how they want to and also how you want to see them develop, then there's no need to, to fix it or that, sorry, not to fix it, but there's no need to touch it. I mean, if it's not causing harm and they're doing what they're supposed to do, I mean, there's, there, to me, in my eyes, there's no reason to touch anything. That makes common sense to me. So I can't see why you wouldn't be there. Okay. So he's a, he's a, he's a scenario with the, the three different formats of cricket now. How does coaching change for that? So obviously the guys that are playing T20 are playing completely different style of cricket than what they're playing in Test match cricket. So how does the coaching? Is there a is there specific coaching for certain um, certain formats? Which I'm sure there is, but do you switch that at a certain age, or how do you deal with that? Yeah, I suppose from my personal experience at the moment, um, everything is is very much like. A, catered towards the skill or just developing the skill of the players. And they all play limited over stuff Um, up until, I guess, early teens, late teens is when you start to see, I guess, longer format cricket exists and they need to be, they need to start then branch out. And and with the advent of the T20 stuff, there's midweek comps or there's Sunday afternoon comps and those sorts of things. So, it actually is quite a challenge because it's not like you, you, you see at the, at the elite end when they've got designated times for test cricket or multi-day stuff, one day is T20s. You actually get quite a mix. You, you're always kind of practicing or competing in all formats, particularly at that younger or say the teenage year sort of stuff. So you kind of have to be able to <laughs> – just get them to recognize and adapt pretty quick uh, to what they've got coming up. And it might be actually almost a case of there's only two or three days between playing a T20 match middle of the week and then Saturday afternoons is the longer format where you might be playing 80, 90 overs sort of thing. So you don't really have time to just focus on one area. Um, You've kind of got to mix it all together. And that boils down to, for me, all about decisions. So you've got to get them to recognize and be able to make decisions based on the context that they're in. And that can be quite hard for a junior athlete. Um, Thankfully, I don't work in that environment. I work in a much younger age group nowadays. So I'm not even concerned with that sort of thing um, to the level that that those guys would be. but it is very much about kind of creating situations where they make decisions. Yes, and I mean you, we see it in the in the, the um, we see it at the the high performance levels nowadays that they're playing all sorts of shots in Test cricket. So there's there's no reason. I mean they're trying to be much more expansive, and that allows you to have a bit more freedom when it comes to training. So you don't just have to focus on being at the crease forever or bowling long spells. You're there to kind of get the most out of the athlete that you can in the time that you've got available. And that isn't to say that there isn't specific training. You're absolutely right there. Like particularly when it comes to T20 cricket, they work a lot in their, their hitting. So that's when you see them, they'll just spend a session just trying to hit the ball over the boundary. That doesn't happen if you're training for a test match. Um, so it just it's all about just kind of adapting a lot of the time knowing full well what you've got in front of you. Be an extremely challenging space and I would have thought the sports likes maybe have a pretty pretty big role in there to maybe set up triggers or something to maybe get them to out of switch out of T twenty mode into test mode or and just play different different style of game. But yeah, extremely challenging space for all the coaches involved, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I'm I'm 
I'm not envious of their situation at all. Yeah. No, that's a, now we've spoken plenty about about the actual players in sport, but how about coaches? What are what are the what the are the coach or what should the coaches out there be trying to do in their in their training sessions? Just in, from a from a general point of view, I guess from from the way I would see it is, I mean, I always fall back on again decision making, but I would always encourage a coach. Uh, and again, if I stay stick with cricket or just in general, but I would always encourage people to create a session that allows them or create, create a session that provides information that you would expect to happen and experience and have to recognize and adapt to that happens in a match as, as often as you can. And I know that might sound like common sense, um, but that kind of thing has somewhat been forgotten for a long time if you look back at a lot of the research or at least anecdotally as well. Anyone, I mean, 10, 20 years ago, if you're involved in junior sport like I was, that wasn't always the focus of a training session. Um, but I would always encourage that, like really trying to, and then it doesn't matter what environment you're in, make the athletes aware of the information that they've got available. And all you then have to do is adapt your session to make sure that that's what the focus is to achieve a specific goal, to get them to reach a certain target, whatever it happens to be. It's all about the information that you provide in how you set up your environment. From from a golf perspective, I've, it's been a challenging space over the years with students because they just want you to tell them the answer. They want you to tell them, just tell me what to do. And... All the all the skill acquisition research shows that if they if the if the the player can work it out themselves, they get it, and it just sticks so much better if they work it out themselves. Is that something that's involved with cricket sport? Is as you said, it's about putting them in scenarios and getting them to work the answer out. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, because you're not going to be out there to hold their hand when push comes to shove on a Saturday afternoon or whenever it happens to be. You, you aren't there to help them. Um, we don't have the luxury in sports like golf or cricket to kind of um, have a significant impact on what the game looks like once it's already started. They're pretty much on their own. So absolutely, it's about giving them the tools to recognize what's in front of them. Um, I don't think I don't think you can really get away these days without creating a player that has that ability um, to and, and have them be successful. I think you might find this one kind of little one percenter where somebody comes out of the woodworks and you just they just do as they're told and it comes off. But the majority of people these days are really seeing the benefit of creating a player that can make decisions and make several decisions and and that can i mean in in your sport of golf there's going to be more than one way to hit a ball in the direction that it needs to go based on the information that's there it might there are several factors that that come into play whether it's the environment it's the crowd just their own self belief those i mean there's a lot of things at play there and how you actually, how that player responds is, is is very much testament to how they've re, kind of trained in the past, and that all comes back to you creating situations for them to recognise information. Do you get pushback from certain athletes for by on that type of training by putting them in that spot, or do you? Because there's certain types of people that don't like that type of training. As I've said, they they just just tell me the answer, just tell me what to do. Do you get pushback? And a and also, how do you deal with that pushback? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, I mean, you don't just get it from athletes; you get it from from coaches as well, who are who are still kind of pushing or relying. I don't want to say relying, actually, still using that technique. And and I I am still an advocate for telling athletes what to do. Some athletes prefer it. And if I'm going to go down the path of letting players be, I guess, will lead the session and making it athlete-centered and making sure that they feel like they're competent and able to achieve something in the session and that re requires me to tell them what to do now and again, then so be it. But there is absolutely pushback from players. Um, I find that 
those of an older generation, a little bit older than me, even my age, are still the ones that push back a little because it's just how they've been brought up and they've gone through systems that are kind of set up that way where the athletes don't have any autonomy and therefore it's come it's just it's part of their build up they just expect that that's how a coach interacts with their athletes i find that the younger generation um we're calling let's say late 20s and and earlier or younger they're a lot more willing and a lot more keen to be involved in the discussion and be part of the session so you don't often get an awful lot of pushback from those athletes so it's it's very much a generational thing i find in terms of having to deal with those players that aren't particularly keen it is to me uh, about just just discussing with them what the point of it is try and create or try and bring them into the conversation about what it is you're trying to create um that can i mean that's not a quick fix if somebody has kind of been in that system for a long time they're not going to see that worth just from one conversation with you it's it's a long burn so you've just got to be prepared that you need to show them or tell them what the benefits are but also show them what the benefits are and a lot of the time that'll come down for that athlete just in the results they get on the field so if you can if you can kind of make them a better player by using your technique and be able to show them that this is the reason for it because you've taken this sort of attack or this sort of um, this approach to your training that's where the the buy-in is going to come it, it, like i said it's a slow burn um, sometimes you've just got to pick your battles and, and sometimes that means that you revert back to something that doesn't look like exactly what you want to achieve but then maybe filter some of what you do want to achieve in there it probably just reinforces how important relationships are between player and coach, and if they if they trust you, and you've set up that environment and that that conversation between yourself and the player, they trust you that you you're taking them down the correct path. That it's always going to work a heap better than if they don't trust you and they just tend to push back. So it's important to set up that 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 two way street, so to speak, between the player and the athlete. Absolutely, and I'm all for that. Being a relatable coach and having the, the player trust and, and respect you is 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 paramount, and, it, and it's one of those things. I mean, I don't think you can have a successful practice without that, that sort of buy-in, without that sort of relationship. Um, it becomes robotic otherwise, and, and I don't think you're creating the best version of that athlete if that's the relationship that you have with your athletes. Now I'm going to throw a strange question at you, and there's probably no no single answer to this question, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway because there's a whole heap of coaches from golf that tune into this podcast. So, and they, from my experience, generally talk too much when it comes to coaching sessions. They give too much feedback to the students standing in front of them. Um, how much feedback is too much feedback, and should coaches learn to shut the hell up, basically? <laughs> I guess the answer to that is how long's a piece of string. Yeah, um, I, I get that too. But yeah, so I'm just curious uh, on what you want. Yeah, that. yeah. I, I, I mean, there's absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's ever a finite answer uh, about how much feedback is too much or how much is too little. By the same respect, I do, however, think that most coaches, and I know this is not just specific to golf, that most coaches in general talk too much. And I say that because that kind of contradicts this idea of allowing players to figure things out for themselves. Because again, if we, we go back to what we were talking about just a second ago, it's about creating players who make decisions because you're not there to hold their hand come match day. And if all you do is talk and talk and talk, it doesn't allow for the decision-making to happen within that player. So if all you do is give feedback if all you do is instruct and you just want to say something all the time, you're not giving the athlete that option. I think silence is one of the most powerful tools that we have as coaches that we simply don't use enough. That's not to say that we shut up for an entire hour, but probably have a real good think about what it is you're actually saying and what the purpose is. Are you honestly saying or giving feedback 
for the sake of it? Or do you genuinely think that this is what is required to help the athlete move on from, say, something they're finding quite challenging um, and, and kind of getting better, getting better at it? That's what I would tend to gravitate towards is only jump in when you genuinely think you need to for the most part. Um, Silence is awfully hard to do as a coach. It's absolutely. really tough. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's why and, – and I think it is very hard because, again, most people have been brought up in a situation where coaches haven't been quiet. There's that expectation that you're not coaching if you're not saying anything. Um, there's always that perception too if you're working with junior athletes when mum and dad are at training, um, which I'm sure you've probably come across before, if the coach is not saying anything, sometimes you get this perception that mum and dad don't think they're getting their money's worth here. So you feel like you have to say something. Um, that's a common a common perception a lot, a lot of, within um, a lot of coaches. So it kind of is a bit of a vicious cycle. But yeah, silence is difficult, but proper silence as well. It's not a case of just being quiet and not doing anything. Use that silence to observe what's happening, to really pay attention to what it is your athlete's doing well, what it is they need some work with. Think of some questions that you might want to follow them up with after you've kind of watched them for a little while. Use that silence as effectively as possible. That's the trick. Just again, and as a rule of thumb, I generally talk to coaches I've talk to about coaching and the closer to a competition you get the the more you should be quiet with regards to feedback to the student you've got to get them to start to understand the stuff that they should be doing coming into a competition as opposed to you telling them what they should be doing yeah and i and i think in my world as well playing in the team sport that's when you kind of rely and you put a little bit of extra um what about of extra reliance on, on the players that are in the team as well to give the feedback. Because, again, they're going to be the ones that are interacting out on the field. Not They're not going to all be chatting to you as the coach. So they're going to want feedback and be able to kind of make decisions as a team when they're out on the pitch. So actually having the athletes give feedback to other players, that's always a nice thing for me to do and see as well because it means that they're genuinely understanding the process that's going on, understanding the situation. Um, it is one of the benefits of actually working in a team environment is you, you're not the only coach there a lot of the time. You've got, in my world, you've got another 10 coaches, another 11 coaches. So I would say to anyone kind of working in that team sports space, yeah, I'd, I like the idea of, of kind of taking the foot off the pedal when it comes to feedback the closer you get to match day. But I can kind of top that up with getting the team to work a lot closer and give a lot more feedback and talk to each other a lot more, um, kind of to top that back up. That makes so much sense. And it's it's a story I brought up in the podcast before. Is when I was coaching in Taiwan, I had a national squad and um, they were early on, they were much the, – the, the team – officials were telling them, okay, you eat now, you train now, you practice now, you play now. And they had their structure all the way through, whereas I was big on giving the players some control over that. So I wanted them to know when they were come to me and set up their own practice schedules and what time they, they want to get up and eat and do that kind of stuff. And Because if they, if they kind of turn into tour players, they, they're going to be doing that themselves in the long term eventually. So we um, had a trip to California and I had some time prior to the first event where Essentially, I said to my wife, I'm going to wait until they come and ask me to practice. Sat in a hotel room for three days before they decided this, that something was wrong and they came and asked me what was going on. And that's, But that was a turning point for our, that setup is all of a sudden they took some ownership of what they needed to do. And again, they started to help each other out and give feedback to each other in their training sessions and setting up and having a chat as a group saying, okay, well, we need to get up this time so we can – Go and practice and do our preparation, and then go and play. And that was that was really powerful. So, some cool ideas there. Yeah, yeah, um, lots of stuff that you can do with that. Absolutely. So, coach education. It's obviously where you've you're in that kind of field now. You're in you're training the coaches that are coming through the system now. 
what are we doing in that coach education space at the moment that is working and some areas that we need to improve maybe? I think what we're doing, I guess, as a, as, as, I guess, as a sector that works, first of all, we're exposing a lot more people who may not have been involved in coaching, at least in my world, um, because academics has not typically been the avenue for a lot of coaches. Um, and I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. It's just not been the avenue that it has existed. So we're actually, first and foremost, we're exposing a lot more people to the world of coaching, which I think is fantastic because it provides a lot more opportunity for volunteer coaches, for community coaches to actually get involved in our sport, which we're, we all know is we always look, we're always looking for more coaches. Um, but I guess specifically what we're doing is, is moving away from this idea that it is all technically driven, that everything we do is very much about um, being the perfect athlete or creating the perfect athlete. A lot more of what coach education in my world is, is very much about understanding the athlete, creating somebody who is not just a good player, but is a good person. So that comes back to understanding the motivation that comes, or the motivation behind someone engaging with sport. It might be then how that motivation transfers into longevity uh, in staying with the sport. Um, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot more information. There's a lot more emphasis on this idea of creating effective practice as well. So there's not an awful lot of, like I said, you don't just go to a session and you learn about this part of the technique or you're doing this training session, which looks like this for the, to, to improve X, Y, Z. It's about understanding what that whole practice session looks like. I think we're doing that quite well. Um, in terms of, I guess, what still needs to be improved, I think all of it needs to be improved. And I don't think, I don't say that lightly. I, I think everything continuously needs to move. I think probably the biggest opportunity though is how, and this might, this is probably more, a bit more of a broader thing, but it's how the information is delivered to coaches. Um, I think if COVID has taught us anything is that being in a classroom or doing a three day workshop, which quite often happens when you're doing some form of accreditation. That's not conducive to how a lot of people work and live nowadays. And I think how we deliver the information and where that information comes from is probably what needs to be improved. Um, using technology to our advantage, employing assessment tasks that are representative of what we would get to see in the field. So I personally don't do exams. I think doing an actual written exam in coaching is completely absurd i mean i don't know what you would test somebody on but that still occurs in other courses and each to their own i don't want to kind of rag on anyone on on a podcast but personally i don't see the value in that i would much prefer to work on a competency based system i think that is there's more value in that and then constantly where i can give some feedback after they've performed some practical sessions or um, giving them giving them an opportunity to work on a project where they have to understand all the ins and outs that come with coaching, say, at a community-based level because you're working with volunteers. So you need how to kind of react, know how to handle that situation. Um, but also I think where there's some opportunities is this idea of mentorship, which has seen a lot of value in a lot of other places outside of coaching, and it is very much starting to become more involved in coach education. I would love to see that implemented, not just in my world of academia, but I'd love to see that across the accreditation schemes that exist in the country um, as well. I think there's a lot of value in learning from other coaches, but having a strong mentor, importantly, not just watching other people do their thing, but actually being able, being able to converse with other coaches and help them or get them to help you when you're in a sticky situation or you need some advice or you do just want somebody to come and watch you coach and give some feedback. That, I think, is where the biggest opportunity is. It, it's a powerful tool having that person that you can talk to about coaching and 
get ideas from and get them to observe you giving lessons and doing doing coaching sessions and getting that feedback. It's it is a really really powerful tool. And something that pops up in this podcast all the time is people that have improved. And I've always I've always found in coaching that especially in in my own sport of golf is the high performance coaches or the the, the high performing coaches are extremely open to that type of setup with other coaches. So if you approach those those higher coaches, they're generally open to doing that with, with coaches coming through. Yeah, we do see that a lot. Though. We in, in uh, Here at Deakin, we have a number of units that have got a placement and a practicum setup that are kind of embedded into the units. And yeah, the students have to go out and seek coaches, coaches to, to kind of do a bit of work, guess a bit of work placement with. I mean, I, I hear a very few people getting turned down. I, I don't. I think coaches are one of the more accepting, I guess, group of people when it comes to trying to develop the next generation of who they are. I think most coaches are more than happy to have someone come along and just be interested in what they're doing. I find that with my research as well. Just being, just just actually asking someone, do do you mind if I have a chat to you about your coaching? They're more than happy to because nobody talks to them about their coaching. And I think that makes the idea of a mentorship so good because you know you're going to get something from it because the person who is mentoring you wants to get as much out of it as, as you do. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Um, you can argue that community-based coaching is arguably the most important because they're the, the kind of kids coming through and starting out and you want to get that foundation right early on. What I've found, because as I said, my son plays about 18 different sports, so I've done, I think, community coaching accreditations in all of those sports so I can help out during his training sessions. They're all they're all varied about how they present that information, as you said, and how they go about accrediting those coaches. It's a challenging space. And do you think that's something we should be kind of headed for is a universal idea of how we present that coach training to those those types of coaches? Yeah, it's funny. I, I've kind of been having this, this discussion with some colleagues of mine in the last few months. It's an ongoing discussion that we have. And I'm not I'm not sure about a, a universal one. Um, I absolutely am on board with things being a lot more I guess standardized, but more importantly, contextual. I think that's that's where the the big um, change needs to make. It needs to happen. Um, I mean, take for example your level four high performance coaches. If you do a level four, you're usually invited on to those accreditation schemes. Uh, they might only be select like a very small number of people to go on to do those. Doesn't matter what sport really, um, but they're pretty much built for people who just want to perform and coach, sorry, coach at the highest level that exists. That to me is quite limiting because why can't somebody want to have a really high level of coach education and ability but still want to coach at a community level? That to me devalues or at least says to me that whoever is looking after these accreditation schemes whether consciously or not, is somewhat devaluing the the role of the coach at the lower levels that aren't high performance. So it's, to me, important that we create levels or coach accreditation that is allowing people who want to be the best performing coach that they can be in the context that they would like to coach. So you could still be a level four coach all the information that you're provided with and that you are educated in is dedicated to say community-based sport. And that way you can create high performing community level players, but still have that mindset that they're there for social interaction and they're not there for the most part to win the big trophy at the end of the year. I think that's, that's what I'm on board with. Um, whether that's universal or not, I think it, it's accreditation schemes that are, designed for the environment that coaches want to actually perform in. I think that's that's the big sell there for me. I like that a lot. And you could certainly argue that, that those guys coaching in that high-performance area have got the easiest job because they've already got the talented athletes. They've got the support staff around them, the expertise in the other areas. They're essentially doing what – they've got the cream of the crop that they're coaching, whereas the, 
the the father that's helping out with the with the ten year old kids. He's got a kid that's going to be a pretty decent player, and he's got the kid that's struggling early on that can't get the the skills, so to speak. So he's arguing got the actual harder job by coaching those kids as opposed to the high performance guy. I I I will be on the fence about whether or not that I don't want to step on any toes, but I yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm on, to be honest, I'm absolutely on board with that statement. I think particularly because the person who does show up to coach the young kids at that early age is likely a volunteer, is likely a parent who doesn't have an awful lot of experience in coaching and therefore doesn't have an awful lot of knowledge about everything that comes with it. And quite a lot of what we see in those lower accreditations even, I guess, from my perspective as well, it's what we're trying to expose our students to is the fact that it's just as important for the coach to be successful and have a lot of knowledge at those lower levels as it is at the higher. Um, it, it is a very difficult job to develop a young person in anything, let alone sport. So those those people are so important, therefore the knowledge that they get needs to be top class and I think that's where we need to really focus a lot of our effort um, as a sector. Yeah, I agree and again, the the point can be made that those coaches are not building um, high-performance athletes. They're essentially creating the the cricketers and the golfers and the tennis players that are going to be playing the sport for 40 years. They're not turning them into pros. They're turning them into those people that – volunteer in the future and support the club and build the club and continue to get the, keep the club going. They're the, they're the lifetime supporters of the sport, so to speak, rather than the high-performance players in the sport. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're creating people who want a love of sport. You're not creating the 1% of the athletes that go on to represent their country. Yeah, so I, I think the point you made earlier on about um, the, the coach training focusing on developing the person as opposed to the the skills so there has to be more focus on that type of the on that side of the coaching is an extremely good point to make so appreciate that well mate thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate it um i've kept you way too long already but i've got a few questions i'd like to throw to all the guests that come on the podcast so if you can spare me five more minutes i'd like to throw those questions at you so no problem You've given plenty of stuff out there for coaches starting out as well, but what advice would you have for coaches starting out if you could give them a couple of specific points? Um, going with an open mind when it comes to working with your players, uh, I guess what I mean by that is actually give them some credit and allow them to kind of be involved in your sessions um, from a coaching perspective. You're just there to facilitate as far as I'm concerned, not to kind of dictate. So use your athletes. They're a really good resource um, when it comes to what a session would look like. Uh, I would also very much encourage people to branch out and reach out to other coaches. I think, as we've kind of said, um, this idea of a mentorship or at least building a community of practice is a very, very strong um, tool and something that can allow you to be very successful because you're not always going to have the answers. So if you're just starting out, branch out to coaches, and they don't have to be, they don't have to be the, the highest of the highest. They just might be the other parents that have coached for a season or two at your local club. Ask them anything you want. Um, I would also very much encourage coaches at those community level clubs if you're all starting out or you're all brand newish. Meet up every once in a while and just discuss how things have been going. I think that's a really kind of thing. I like, I like to kind of suggest maybe do a, a practice design workshop as, as a club. I think that's a, a, something that um, not an awful lot of people do, but I think we'll get a lot of benefit from. I think that's something I would encourage. Just sit down and chat about ideas about what you can do at practice. I like it a lot. Lots of lots of cool, cool tips there for coaches starting out. Really awesome. Okay, for... You can come at it from a cricket point of view if you like. So for cricketers starting out, advice for them or athletes in general, if you want to go yep. that way as well? Tr- yep. Well, I mean, it applies for golf as well. It applies for anyone um, who might be listening. Try anything and absolutely everything. If something you, If you don't think something's working, 
or if you don't think you're being as successful as you would, then, then don't be afraid to try a different body position or or whatever it happens to be. Get get something that you're comfortable with that allows you to perform well when it comes to your your technique, your decision-making abilities, whatever it happens to be. Try as much out as you can before you settle on, this is how I'm going to do it from now on. Um, and the other thing I would say is look for the information that is around you all the time. That is going to dictate, that is going to lead you to answering the question, which is how do I perform in this context? Makes makes sense. I, I don't know whether you, you find the same issue in cricket, but in golf, when they're hitting the hitting the bad shot, the bad shot, the bad shot, for God's sake, just change something to do something different. Yeah, and sometimes it just might just be stepping away and having a quick think about it, like what's not working here? But that's all it takes. Yeah, absolutely. Just do something a little bit different. Well, it can be like if the ball's going thirty yards to the right in the golf swing. Just get the ball to go left somehow. It doesn't matter what doesn't matter what you do. Just yeah. make it go the other way, and then you can start to work somewhere in the center of it all. So, yeah, yeah. really cool. Um, is there anything that you would change in your career journey coaching so far? I wouldn't say necessarily change. I, I would love though to have maybe spent some more time coaching um, than I probably have. I mean, I, I moved into academia a lot earlier than I expected to. Um, so I didn't, I mean, that takes up then a lot more of my time that I would have loved to have been involved. And I always say, I'd, I do miss getting my hands dirty. Um, don't get me wrong. I love what I do and I love being able to coach the young kids at the moment, but I would have loved to have spent a little bit longer, maybe moving through some of the more pathways as a coach for a little bit longer before moving into to academia, yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard space. I've kind of shifted off that, I'm off that path as well, where I'm not hands-on coaching full-time anymore. And you do, it is something that you, when you sign up to be a coach, that's what you sign up to do is to be out there training those 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 sports people. So it can be challenging sometimes if you don't get out there as um, too often. Hard, hard for you. Um, five years time, where do you see yourself? To be honest, I I don't tend to think that far ahead. That's fair um, enough. Which, which I, it's, I'm not much of a planner. I do quite like to just go with the flow an awful lot. I mean, I plan day to day. That's that's my extent. Very organised in that regards. But when it comes to what happens in five years' time, I just kind of like to see a natural evolution. Sometimes, I mean, there's all the all the checkpoints that you need to hit uh, in every workplace, and it's likely that I will end up moving through the university system. Uh, into more senior roles and um, I would though like to be involved I guess in I guess the development or being involved a little bit more of coach education from an industry perspective though I think that's where I would love to see myself probably still so well still sticking in in the job that I've got now but having more of an influence and linking up academics with industry when it comes to coach education because at the moment they're very separate entities and i think that there could be a lot of value in bringing the two a lot closer together so i would love to see that happen um and me play some sort of role in that that's a good cool idea if there's any sports out there keen to, to get in touch i'm sure you can get in touch with will and if you um keen to have a chat um obviously you've got access to a whole heap of information where you're based at the moment working but where do you go when you you try to improve yourself or source some more learning on on coaching in general so, yeah, I do tend to rely a lot on the research that um, is available out there, which I know is quite often stuck behind a paywall for, for most coaches. I do encourage, though, I think there's a lot of value in getting involved in some of the higher, like the national sport organization stuff, um, any sort of national sport organization, it doesn't matter what it is, tends to have a really good database of practice activities or blogs, uh, blogs, uh, or I guess workshop tips, those sorts of things that everyone I think knows exists. Uh, but I think there's a lot of valuing those and I tend to still dip in and have a look at those because I'm not the beacon of all information, not even close to it. So all of that information all comes from the research that I would read. It's just actually put into an applied setting, which I find is a lot more valuable, um, particularly if you're actually then obviously you want to go out and test it for yourself. So yeah, I would definitely recommend hitting up your, your national sporting organization's website and 
if they don't have, I guess, that sort of information, jump onto another sport because there's no reason you can't adapt to what they've got for what sport you've got. Makes sense. I like it. So where can people find you if they would like to get in touch and maybe continue the conversation? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm pretty accessible by, by email if you want to have a direct conversation that way, uh, which is uh, drwvickery at gmail.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I very I don't often do an awful lot with Twitter, but I do every now and again dip in and dip out, and if there's a post, I might pop up there. So that's um, – jeez, you might, Brent, know this better than I do. I think it's – I think it's – I can't remember exactly what it is. I, was I think it's W underscore Vickery. I should probably look that up. I am on Twitter. It'll be Will Vickery. I'll pop up. It'll it'll have a photo there with some cricket stuff as well. Clean-shaven look in that one. Yes, well. I, 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 yes, this is very much a, a, a lockdown uh, bit of facial hair. But, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I would say those are the best two avenues. I don't have any other social media stuff going on. But, um, I mean, if people want to check out my research, it's all under Will Vickery as well. But email or Twitter is the best, the best option there. I will put some links in the show notes for everybody so they can find you. There is some of your articles on Google Scholar, so you can find some of them out there without having to pay for them. And I've gone through a few of those. I've gone through a few. I've got some access to some sports journal so that I can see some of your stuff. So it's pretty cool to read through that stuff, which is pretty cool. I'm happy to send that. Like if anybody ever does want things that are stuck behind a paywall as well, like I'm more than happy to send it through. So they've only got to hit me up. So, again, Will, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll definitely, as I said, I've only got about halfway through my points that I had written down here. So we might have to get you on for a part two at some stage in, in, a, in a few months' time. But, again, I appreciate your time today. Not a problem. It's been a pleasure. 